Welcome to a special mini-season of Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts and a co-host of The Waves, Slate's show about feminism and gender. This episode is one of five that are all available in your feed right now about second actors, people who have made a dramatic career pivot at some point in their working lives. I'll be talking today with Mary Stevenson, who spent 40 years as an economics professor and then became a fitness instructor for older adults. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Please tell me who you are and, and what your career journey has been. My name is Mary Stevenson, and I spent most of my adult life as an economics professor at University of Massachusetts, Boston. And uh, around the time that I was stepping down, kind of you know winding down that career, I started my encore career as a fitness instructor for older adults. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, but let's begin with what we might call your first career. You started your work life as an economics professor. Was that something that you had always intended to do? No. I grew up in uh, a neighborhood where there were not a whole lot of college graduates. And uh, my role models when I was in high school were a cousin who was a math teacher and another cousin who was a social worker. And when I got to college, the question was, was I going to be a math teacher or a social worker? And people started talking about graduate school. And I said, what's that? (laughs) But so I presume, given the nature of your career, that you had uh, quite a bit of graduate uh, school. So where did you study? I was an undergraduate at at Brandeis, which was um, a good place to be because it was a place where there were a lot of women who were very serious about careers. Mm. Uh, And then I did my graduate work at the University of Michigan. I was in Ann Arbor for five years and never figured out where they hid the ocean. (laughs) I hope they at least had good coffee. Um, So you graduated from the University of Michigan, and then what happened? By then, I was married and uh, facing the problem that I think has not gotten any better today, which is job search for dual career households. Mm. And so my former husband and I were determined that we were, you know, not going to fall into the usual, you know, uh, assumptions. But ultimately, what happened when he got job offers and I didn't Mm. is that I became the trailing spouse. 
And so I had to use that for what it was worth and write. We were going to the Boston area. I wrote to every school imaginable in the Boston area and said, essentially, I'm a trailing spouse. And you both were equally qualified, I presume. Yeah, pretty much. The same credentials. Yeah, Yeah, he was in a different field, but Mm -hmm. yeah. So, but you ended up at the University of Massachusetts, Boston? Yes. And how long did you work there? Well, when all is said and done, full-time and then part-time post-retirement, 40 years. Wow. You don't get many uh, 40-year jobs these days. It beats 40 years in the desert. (laughs) Just about, I imagine. So, you know, it's funny because I think professor, college professor, at least those of us who've gone to college, kind of have a sense of what that involves. But as far as you're concerned, if I were to say to you, what does an economics professor or what does a college professor do all day? What's the answer? Well, at UMass Boston, there was a real focus on uh, what we called the urban mission. Uh, UMass Boston is an urban university similar to the city colleges in New York and uh, and other urban universities elsewhere. And so we had a non-traditional student body, mm-hmm. and the focus was on teaching. Now, we certainly had to meet expectations about scholarship and did, and it's it's a place that uh, that values scholarship as well, mm. but uh, people go there, uh, faculty go there to teach many mm-hmm. faculty, because they really want to work with an underserved student body, and and that's what kept a lot of us there for a very long time. <laughs> so. You would, so tell me about your days. Would you be in a lecture class? Is that the kind of teaching that you would do for the most part? Well, UMass Boston was, the campus was built in, it actually opened in 1974. Until then, we were in rented space in downtown Boston. So when the campus opened, it was built on this idealistic notion of the Santa Cruz campus. And so it had very few lecture halls. So geographical constraints, architectural constraints, forced us to focus on smaller classes. Now, that has changed. There's been a lot of new buildings since 1974. There are now many more lecture halls, and that is now uh, a model that more departments rely on. But when I was there, lecture hall space was at a minimum, and we had classrooms that held, you know, roughly... 30 students, give or take. And so for most of my time there, I I taught um, in small classrooms. So it would be what in Britain we would call kind of a tutorial kind of setting, which doesn't necessarily in Britain mean one-to-one, but in relatively small group and just talking with the professor. Right. So I uh, would, would have uh, stuff that I wanted to explain, but there was a lot of give and take, a mm-hmm. lot of opportunities for students to, to ask questions or to get into conversations about topics. And because my students did have a lot of real-world experience, and I was teaching things like labor economics, gender economics, mm-hmm. urban economics. There was a lot to pull from in yeah. that class, in those classrooms. Now, did you? You just mentioned three particular specialties. Did you have a particular topic that you were you were most interested in that you did the most research or, or scholarship on that you particularly liked to teach? 
Did you have a kind of specialty? Well, it, it evolved. So my dissertation, which was unusual at the time, was on women's wages and occupational segregation. And when I first got to UMass Boston, I proposed uh, a women's economics course. And the initial reaction was from a guy saying, well, then I want to do the economics of sports. But they actually, it was an all-male department, but they were very supportive, and I did get to teach that class. I mean, both classes sound pretty good. You know, the economics of sports, that's a class that I imagine would be very popular and pretty interesting. But Well, there actually is now yeah. an economics of sports <laughs> right. taught by a woman. Ah, right. <laughs> right. Ah. Um, so you did that for many years. Was this the kind of institution where you would also be guiding people's graduate work? Yes. And again, you stay at a place 40 years. And even if you don't change, <laughs> which I hope I did, the place changes. Mm. And so we started developing graduate programs. And so I was one of the founding faculty of the graduate. Uh, it was a Ph.D. program in public policy. Oh, wow. If you were asked kind of how you changed people's lives over the course of that first career, what kind of answer would you give? Like, how did you impact the lives of the people who you were teaching or that you were in some way mentoring or, or kind of modeling uh, ways to be uh, with? Well, one of the things that is very satisfying about teaching is when a former student comes back and says, you changed my life. And I have had that experience of people uh, whose horizons were, were broadened, not just by me, but by so many other uh, committed faculty members mm -hmm. at UMass Boston. So it is a place where people really get transformational uh, experiences. It is getting harder and harder for uh, students without much support or without much background in in higher education to to get that kind of uh, kind of work exp uh, get that kind of life experience right well it it sounds like even at public colleges the the gap between students who come in well prepared with lots of resources and support at home uh, it sounds like the gap between them and students who are low-income, first-generation, it sounds like that gap is widening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, in, in some ways, I faced that gap when I was a college mm -hmm. student, but it didn't seem as big a leap as, as it seems now. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's tougher now. Yeah. What made you decide to leave, or, or as you've said, wind down that particular profession? Well, I, I had been there my whole career, mm -hmm. and part of it was uh, a financial decision because I had been there long enough that I had maxed out my pension. And so it was, uh, it, it was a situation where if I'd stayed, I would have been not earning that much more than I would have received from the pension. And it, and it felt like... It felt like it was time to go. I made the decision very quickly, but I also, and, and for me this was really important, I also had a fairly smooth transition from one career to the other because I was able to negotiate a post-retirement part-time contract. Uh -huh. And so for three years, I was teaching part-time, and I was revving up my encore career during that time. And... You know, I think transitions are important, and it was so valuable to me to be able to have 
a fairly smooth one. That's really interesting. So how did you, and I just have to note that it feels very appropriate for an economics professor to make a very rational decision about, <laughs> right. about well, you know, the pension. It makes no sense for me to carry on doing this. So I'm glad to see economics professors doing what they preach. Uh, so that's great. So tell me how you kind of, how you found this second career. Were you looking for something? Were you kind of casting around for a, for another job, as it were? No, I, I really stumbled into this. I, I should explain that when I tell my cousins who knew me when I was a kid that I'm doing this, they laugh <laughs> because I was, I, I was the clumsy kid. I was the kid who only got called for a team because she might have been friendly with the captain, mm. not because of any you know, physical ability. And so it's, um, it's really ironic that this clumsy kid <laughs> is now a fitness instructor. <laughs> but what happened was uh, I, I had been, it's not like I exercised my whole life. I had been pretty much a couch potato. I had a demanding career. I had kids to raise. Mm. I had a long commute. And so uh, I, I really didn't do any kind of exercise. And then I got to be uh, about 50 or so and was in good health. And it suddenly dawned on me, if I wanted to stay that way, I better start doing something. Mm. And so I did join a gym and I did do the sort of standard stuff, the free weights and the machines. And while I was on a trip, I must have lifted a piece of luggage the wrong way and injured my shoulder oh. and couldn't do the free weights and got bored with the treadmill and out of pure boredom <laughs> walked into an aerobics class because at least it was something to do and there I was. Right. And it was a class in something called the Nia Technique, oh. a wonderful, wonderful exercise program. Um, you don't feel like you're working out. You feel like you're dancing. Um, but it's a great workout, and it works physically, it works emotionally, it works on brain health, and I was enchanted. And so <laughs> uh, after that one class, the shoulder healed, wow. but I never went back to the free weights. <laughs> I just started doing Nia. It's funny because the way that you described your previous life is feels very much my life. I always wonder where people find the time to, to go to the gym, and I don't have kids or a long commute. But um, can you say a little bit more about what it was that you connected with? Because, I, you know, I get that. Oh, dance like dancing. But why, why was that appealing? You said that it kind of it worked on all kinds of levels. You make it sound like falling in love. Well, maybe not so different. Um, as a kid, I always liked to dance. I, I was, I mean, this this goes back to a certain time, which uh, maybe not all of your listeners will, will <laughs> resonate to this. But when I was uh, a kid, I would come home from school and turn on the TV and watch a program called American Bandstand. Mm -hmm. And all the new dances and all the new records would come out on American Bandstand. And I would, you know, be there dancing in front of the TV, <laughs> trying to imitate everything they were doing. So never athletic, but always liked to dance. Uh -huh. And my notion of what an exercise class was that was that it didn't have anything to do with dancing. Uh -huh. And this was a, a place where you could really feel like you were dancing. The music is very compelling. 
Uh, there are lots of different routines, but uh, you know, from one to the other, the music is is always compelling. Uh-huh. You do it your body's way. So when I first went in and my shoulder wasn't working right, you know, I, I mentioned to the instructor beforehand, uh, and she said, "Well, then." Don't move it. <laughs> you know, the idea is to enjoy your movement, not to cause pain. Don't do anything that's going to cause pain. So mm-hmm. other people rolled their shoulders and I didn't mm-hmm. until my shoulder got better. Right. But it was just, it was such a delightful way to exercise, like nothing I had ever had in high school gym. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it really opened up a world to me. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. But then you decided, well, tell me how you decided to kind of become almost a NIA or other kinds of fitness instruction professional. How did you decide to become an instructor? Well, I knew from my economics teaching that the way you really understand something is to teach it to someone else. Mm. And that was really my motivation to, to get into it. I wanted to understand um, the Neo technique more deeply. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get trained to teach it as a way for me to understand it better for myself. And then I did start teaching it. And then I started thinking, that, and this is about the time that I'm making the transition, and I started teaching, I started thinking, well, who am I going to teach this to? I'm already in my mid-60s. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, there are lots of older people out there who would really enjoy this, who would benefit from it. And so I started teaching Nia. And then, you know, lot, many people have not heard of Nia, but they've heard of Zumba. Yeah. And there is a special Zumba class for older adults called Zumba Gold. <laughs> so I went and got trained for that. And then I heard about a program that uh, a, a NIA um, trainer had developed um, that uh, she had 
taken classes in, in gerontology and had really studied, you know, the process of aging and what it does to the brain. And she came up with a program of, um, to call it chair aerobics doesn't do it mm. justice. The program is called Ageless Grace, and it's all about fitness, physical and brain fitness. And it can be done by just about anybody because you're sitting in a chair. Mm. And again, like Nia, you move only the things that um, are not causing pain. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I'm raising my hands above my head and that doesn't work for some people, then they just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And so those three different modalities, Nia, Zumba Gold, and Ageless Grace, are the things that I started teaching. And there, there was another transition involved mm-hmm. because I was living in Massachusetts and then moved to New York. Ah. So in, in Massachusetts, I was teaching at um, uh, various senior centers, mm. the senior center in the community where I lived, the senior center in the next community over. There was um, uh, an agency uh, whose purpose was to help low-income individuals stay independent, low-income seniors stay mm-hmm. independent. And through them, I was teaching classes in um, Boston public housing. Oh, wow. I was also teaching at high-end retirement communities. And, you know, the resources were very different, but some of the issues were the same. Mm. How do I get up out of a chair that doesn't have arms? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so... First, before we get to your geographical move, I'm curious, you know, you've said I trained to be a trainer. What did that training consist of? Well, the the training is very different for the different things. So mm. the, the NIA training is essentially uh, six day, it's no five days of very, it's called an intensive. And <laughs> there's a reason for that. <laughs> and so that was, you know, a, a it it was intense because it was you know morning to night yeah. and and you learned a huge amount about the way the body moves and that was a wonderful basis for the other modalities because mm. the other trainings are uh, are not as intense mm-hmm. so the neo training was the big one uh, the uh, zumba gold is about a day and a half mm. uh, the ageless grace is about a day and a half. And do you need to kind of prove, like, you know, I know what your credentials were to be an economics professor. I know how you, you know, graduated from the University of Michigan, but was it a similar kind of showing your expertise, showing your scholarship, showing that you could do this thing? I mean, were there any similarities in that well, sense? Well, um, again, because I was starting in my mid-60s, I thought, how am I going to get people to take me seriously? And so I got certified by one of the national certification groups, AFA. Aerobics and Fitness Association uh-huh. of America. And for that, I had a big fat textbook that I had to <laughs> wow. study that was about nutrition and kinesiology and bones and muscles and stuff that I never had to study as an economist. <laughs> so there was a, a, a paper and pencil test, uh-huh. but there also was a practical test uh-huh. where there were ju- there was a judge and I had to go and, you know, demonstrate that I could do, you know, various kinds of moves uh-huh. of so uh, part of it was demonstrating that you can do the moves. And then the, the other part was demonstrating that you could teach the moves. And it was a very specified kind of thing where you had two minutes or three minutes to illustrate the move, show different modifications for, you know, less extreme, more extreme. Mm-hmm. 
explain the purpose of the move, show how to do it safely and correctly, and identify the muscle groups involved, all while maintaining eye contact with with the uh, with the participants. Right. So it, it was uh, it was a very challenging thing, and I have sworn to myself that I will never let that certification last <laughs> because I never want to go through that again. You know, it's funny. I I. I'm imagining that you know, whereas you know, you 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 need to to get those those higher degrees uh, to be a college professor. But for very few disciplines, is there any like physical tests that you have to pass? Right. You don't have to show <laughs> that you know how to do so. Like, I wonder if that might actually be a good thing. Now, at any point in this training, which as you've mentioned, can be quite intense and demanding, you know, I'm getting the impression that you actually like the studying and you liked taking that great big textbook. There's a, there's a certain sparkle that you get when you well, talk about that. But put it this way, I was much less afraid of the paper and pencil test <laughs> than of the practicum. <laughs> right. Was there any point where you sort of started to think, yeah, I'm not sure about this. Is this really what I want to do? I mean, were, were there parts of it that were just genuinely hard and just not that enjoyable? When I'm actually, well, you know, I, I travel around to teach. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'm driving somewhere and the weather isn't good or the weather suddenly becomes not good. Right. And I say, what am I, what am I doing this for? Right. But um, for the most part, I, I really don't have any regrets about it because I really enjoy what I'm doing and I think I'm good at it. Yeah. One of the groups I teach Zumba Gold to after the move now, uh-huh. I teach retired school teachers in the Bronx. Wow. And many of them will come up and say to me, you're a good teacher. And it means something Got coming it. from that group. Well, so let's complete that part of the story. So you did move and, and were there like, what was the challenge of moving, the, that geographical move? How did it affect your, your job, as it were? Well, I, I had a much fuller schedule when I was in Massachusetts, and it, it's taken a while to, to get established here. Um, one of the things that, that happened is I would, you know, offer a class through an adult education program. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I assume what happened is people would look at the catalog and say, well, I've never heard of that, and I've never heard of her. So... <laughs> You know, so uh, so, so you some personally of the... weren't as as well known. You had, you had <laughs> right. to reestablish yourself, right? Yeah. So it's taken a while, but I am teaching the retired school teachers in the Bronx. I'm teaching um, at a community center about twenty minutes north, and I also have a private client who I've been working with for over two years now. This is a woman who can't really get out of the house because of vision issues, uh-huh. and so I've been working. I I go to her house uh-huh. and. And over the years, we started once a week until her neurologist said, what are you doing? I see some changes for the better. Whatever you're doing, I want you to do more of it. And so I now see her twice a week. (laughs) That's amazing. What's your favorite part of this work? Actually teaching the classes. There's, I probably... All the while I was teaching economics, I probably overprepared, mm-hmm. and it's the same with this. So the most challenging thing is to learn the new dances uh-huh. because, you know, you change up the music, you change up the routines, uh, you learn uh, new choreography, uh-huh. and that is to learn the new choreography to a new rhythm is a challenge. But and you, then when when yeah. I'm teaching it, it's fun. Because you can't be looking at your textbook while you're teaching, can you? No. <laughs> and I wonder, 
does your your first career, your your work as an economics professor, inform your your current work teaching these fitness modalities? Well. I've been a teacher all my adult life, and that, I think, is the only common point between (laughs) the original career and the encore career. I'm still teaching. Yeah, yeah. Now that you've kind of, you're well into your second act, uh, do you ever kind of think, why was I wasting my time as an economics professor? Do you, I mean, do you ever kind of think, I wish I'd been doing this the whole time? No. (laughs) No, I think... um, Well, again, the practical economics professor says it's one thing to be doing this when you're retired Mm -hmm. and you have a pension. It's quite another thing to be actually trying to earn a living doing this. But I also do not for a minute regret the time I spent as an economist. Um, <laughs> I, I think back to um, the, all the students I've taught. I think back to you know, the work I got to do. I think back to the people I got to meet. Uh-huh. And uh, no regrets there at all. There's one thing that strikes me, and, and this is a little touchy perhaps, but there's tremendous prestige to being a professor, a college professor. Maybe not so much prestige to being a fitness instructor, even for seniors and all the good that it's very clear that can do. Do you ever kind of bring out that, well, I was for 40 years an economics professor to kind of, you know, push back on people who are like, who are making judgments based on what you do for a living now? I have never felt the need to do that. Hmm. So that that's something that's, that's purely my projection. That's interesting. Do you think you might at any point hang up your Zumba shoes or, or is this something that you want to keep on doing? I hope that I can do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I'm also hoping, I, I often joke that you know what I'm doing, I hope, helps lots of seniors. But I know that one senior it's helping is me. <laughs> and, and I do hope that in doing this, it will make it easier to continue to do it. Mary Stevenson, thank you so much. I should also mention, Mary, that you are the mother of longtime Slate Stir and Slate Podcaster. He's a host of Secret History of the Future and who runs that, Seth Stevenson. Yes. When I was at a party once with younger people, someone brought someone else over and said, guess what? She's Seth's mother. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome to hear. Thank you so much for coming into our beautiful Brooklyn studio and uh, for talking to us about your second act. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thank you. That's it for this special bonus episode of Working. But don't worry, there are four more episodes about second actors available to listen to right now. If you have any thoughts about this episode, you can write to us at working at slate.com. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.